0: We're now in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. And the section here is from verse 1 down to verse 24, really, but we're only going to get through verse 6 today. So let's read those first 6 verses of Luke 14, 1 to 6. It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. Now, this section here is only in Luke, and it may be that as a physician, Luke has a particular interest in this kind of healing. He may have tried to take care of many people with dropsy. We'll talk about that in a minute. And without much success, don't know for sure. But Luke seems to have a special interest in the healings of Jesus. And so when we look at the verse 1 there. It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath that he bread. They were watching him closely. Now, we've seen the Pharisees many, many times, and they're usually in opposition to Jesus. And just as a reminder, this religious sect of the Pharisees developed between the Testaments probably a couple hundred years before Christ came. And when you look at the theology of the Pharisees, maybe even sort of the worldview of the Pharisees, you might think they would accept Jesus because they had a lot in common. They accepted all the Old Testament as God's word. They believed in angels, demons, uh, other supernatural things. They believed in the resurrection and in rewards and punishments after death. And the Pharisees also tended to resist the Greek and Roman authorities over them. If you look at the Sadducees, the Sadducees are very different in many ways. The Sadducees are more aristocratic. They only accepted the first five books of Moses as authoritative. They didn't believe in angels or demons or the resurrection. You see that in other places in the Gospels. And they also tended to be more friendly with the Gentile authorities. The Sadducees were generally the high priests, those sorts of people who were in close with people like Herod and Pilate and so forth. So, in some ways, the Pharisees had more in common with Jesus, yet they added many laws and traditions beyond God's law and. In time, they became hostile to anyone who didn't think they needed to obey these man-made laws. And that's where we see a lot of the trouble with these Pharisees and Jesus. I think the problem is seen most clearly in Matthew 15. Jesus says this to them, and he's quoting Isaiah. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. The Pharisees were among the most outwardly religious of all, the Jews. In fact, they made a show of it, didn't they? We see in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. They would love to have their religiosity proclaimed on the streets, to pray out in public, to have people uh, sound trumpets when they came by. And look how, how, uh, how religious we are, how spiritual we are. But they taught as doctrines the precepts of man. They take man's law, add it to God's law, and give man's law even a, a higher place than God's law, and even worse, their heart is far away from God. They didn't truly love God, they loved themselves, they loved their law, they didn't love God and his law, and that was their fundamental problem, it was a heart problem. And that's why they had so much trouble with Jesus, when the, the one that the law pointed to, these supposed experts in the law, when that one finally came and and the person of Jesus Christ they rejected him because they didn't really love the law, they didn't listen to Moses they listened to themselves and their own hard hearts it says here in Luke 14.1 that we have one of the leaders of the Pharisees has invited Jesus to his house and we don't know exactly what this term means per se it could be that he was the ruler of the synagogue or a member even of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem that was a, a group of 70 men who were had had sort of uh, religious control over what happened in the land of the Jews. But whatever he was as a leader, he was probably a wealthy man, and this would have been a larger group of people, not a small private affair with just Jesus and the the Pharisee. Because we see later on, in verse 7, there are some invited guests, and they're picking up places of honor. So this may have been a larger banquet sort of style of of luncheon here after... Uh, a Sabbath service. <clears throat> and so he went into the house of one of these leaders on the Sabbath to eat bread. And Jesus was probably in hostile territory. He often was when he was with the Pharisees. Although in this story, it doesn't show any overt hostility, just that they were watching him closely at the end of verse 1. And it was common in those days to invite a visiting rabbi to lunch after Sabbath service. You might have, growing up in a church, if you had a visiting pastor, you might have the, your your home pastor or somebody else from the church invite him to their home after after worship services. That was common in these days too. Jesus might come through a village, and you know, Jesus after you teach in the synagogue, can you come to our house and enjoy a meal with us? And I was interested thinking about this. I remembered a, a number of times that Jesus eats in homes in the gospel. You could maybe write a book or do a Bible study on it. I'm not sure how interesting it would be, but uh, you could think of times like. Uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all these places have the story of uh, Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, after a, a Sabbath, Jesus went to Peter's home and healed Peter's mother-in-law, and afterwards she served them. Presumably, she gave them food. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke also talk about when Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners at Matthew's house. After Matthew was converted, he invited Jesus to meet his friends. We also see Matthew, Mark, and John not... Luke in this case. In Bethany, we have, at the home of Simon the leper, Mary anointing Jesus' feet with costly perfume just before his crucifixion. And that was a meal there, of course, as well. And then the Last Supper in the upper room, is a well-known one. But there are several more examples of Jesus eating in homes, and these are only in Luke. And I said before, Luke has a special interest in diseases as a physician. He also seems to have a special interest in meals. So I don't know if he, he really was a, uh, uh, loved to eat or what. But we have in Luke invitations from Pharisees for Jesus to eat with them. And only Luke has these. Luke 7, 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to dine with him and he entered the Pharisees' house and reclined at the table. Luke 11, 37. Now, when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. And then we have this example in Luke 14.1. And so we have three times Jesus is invited to eat with a Pharisee. This one in Luke 14, though, is the only one that's said to be on the Sabbath. So that has a special importance in the story that's going to follow. Also, Luke is the only one who has the story of, remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus? and Jesus appears to them after his resurrection and he walks with them for a time and beginning with uh, Moses and all the prophets he talks about himself in the in the old testament and when they arrive there what is what do they do? do they have a meal and Jesus breaks bread and that's when they realize who he is and so only Luke has that story of Jesus breaking bread with these people in this home after his resurrection so again Luke has several stories unique to his gospel that talk about having meals with whether believers or unbelievers. Now, it says here it's on the Sabbath, and again, I don't want to get into a long discussion of the Sabbath because we just talked about this in detail a few months ago. But just to remind ourselves of the, the difficulties, perhaps, of Jesus in this situation, Remember, there were clear Sabbath laws in the Old Testament about what you were allowed to do or not allowed to do on the Sabbath. So you weren't allowed to work, you weren't allowed to light fires, and so forth. But over the years, there were man-made laws to help fill in the gaps. For example, you have a law that says you can't work. Well, then the natural question is, what is work? What what consists of work? I don't want to be killed, I don't want to die, I don't want to break God's law. How do I know what is work and what isn't work? And so. I think a lot of these laws were originally created with good intentions to keep people far back from breaking God's law, but over time, God's law itself was obscured by these man-made laws, and they became as important or more important to people than God's actual law, greater authority than God's law. You might remember a couple funny ones I mentioned a while back, and this, these are written, these are laws that were part of the tradition written down in the years after Christ, so... We're not sure that they happened in Jesus' time, but they may well be, because it was shortly afterwards. But here's a quote. Women are also forbidden to look in the glass that is in the mirror on the Sabbath because they might discover a white hair and attempt to pull it out, which would be a grievous sin. Now, men do this too. I've done this before, probably on a Sabbath. But anyway, another law was you can't wear false teeth because they might fall out, and the wearer might then lift and carry them, which would be sinful on the Sabbath. Now, those are kind of funny ones, but in terms of what we're seeing this morning with regard to healing, what were some of the laws there? While it prohibited, that is the Sabbath law, the, the man-made Sabbath law, while it prohibited the application or use on the Sabbath of any remedies that would bring improvement or to cure the sick, all actual danger to life superseded the Sabbath law, but nothing short of that. That is, uh, ointments and that sort of stuff you couldn't use on the Sabbath, but if somebody was in, in danger of dying, you could help them. Thus, to state an extreme case, if on the Sabbath a wall had fallen on a person, and it were doubtful whether he was under the ruins or not, whether he was alive or dead, a Jew or a Gentile, it would be duty to clear away the rubbish sufficiently to find the body. If life were not extinct, that is, if they're still alive, the labor would have to be continued, but if the person were dead, nothing further should be done to extricate the body. It's obviously too late to help them, so we just leave the the bricks where they are so that people aren't doing work on the Sabbath unnecessarily. So that's the general outline. And on top of this, there were other kinds of rules depending on which rabbi you followed. Some would have this list, some would have that list. So it could be very sectarian, perhaps. Your favorite rabbi, your favorite sort of pastor, you might say, would have his own special rules that you would follow. So those kinds of laws are, are all in the mix here when Jesus is sitting here at the table and invited to eat bread, and this man comes in, who has dropsy? Now it says here also that the, the the Pharisees are watching him closely. One commentator said that these Pharisees consider themselves watchdogs of the faith. That's kind of an interesting way of phrasing it. So the, the Pharisees are watching Jesus because they're in charge of of their faith. They want to make sure Jesus conforms to it. And so I expect that Jesus wasn't invited out of the kindness of their heart, but These men here were looking for opportunities to catch him in his words or his deeds. If we look back at Luke chapter 6, you'll notice there's more overt hostility here in Luke chapter 6. In in Luke 14, they only say they're watching him closely, but in Luke 6, looking at verse 6, another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely. Sound familiar? Watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath, so they might find a reason to accuse him. So they're looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. But he knew what they were thinking, and said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or destroy it? After looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. So we have here verse 7, they want to accuse Jesus. And then at verse 11, they were filled with rage and discussed what they would do to Jesus. So again, Luke 6, they're really hostile. And Luke 14, they're not so obviously hostile, but they're at least watching Jesus closely, it says. Yeah. Sure. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that, that's a good question. Yeah, and when you talk about these Sabbath meals, especially big ones, how do they handle this? And what they would do is they would just make a lot ahead of time, and so they wouldn't they wouldn't have hot food at these sort of Sabbath luncheons because they couldn't light a fire, and so they would have uh, cold food that was prepared the the day before. So I, I, I don't know if the the servants uh, maybe that they allowed. The wives or somebody else, or I, don't, I don't know exactly who, who served the, field, the meal or if they, it was more like a, a buffet, set it out and get your own food or what. But, uh, that's a good question. But, yeah, yeah, they, they did try to go out of their way to make sure, at least superficially, to keep God's law in, in these cases. So that, again, cold food, not lighting fires, not working any more than they had to. I mean, they had rules about, um, how you're allowed to carry things, and you might remember this example, if you toss some, if you have a ball in your hand, you toss it in the air, if you catch it with the same hand, it's okay, but if you catch it with a different hand, that's work. And so, it, it, superficially again, they were really concerned with keeping the law and their man-made laws on top of that. So I, I expect whatever their servants were doing, they, they probably were trying to keep them from, from breaking the Sabbath law. Sure. Back to Luke 14. So we've seen the real hostile situation in Luke 6 with the man with the withered hand. Luke 14, verse 2, it says, There was in front of him a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent, and he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day. And they can make no reply to this. Now it says here, this man is suffering from dropsy. Does anybody have another word in their translation? Uh, probably King James has dropsy too, I don't know about ESV. Uh, dropsy is also called edema. It's uh, when your bodily tissues swell up with, with fluids. Some of you may have had this in the past. It's fairly common in pregnancies and so forth. But this man here who had this dropsy or edema... This man was not likely an invited guest to the banquet. I saw it was interesting. In some situations, you might have a big banquet, but people who were just walking by could just sort of watch what's going on. They wouldn't be able to sit down and eat with you, but it's kind of an open area, so people just curious, passersby, you just walk walk in and just see what's going on. Who's there? Who's getting what? Um, a little more open society than today, which you wouldn't want neighbors, that sort of, or, or random strangers coming to your house during Sunday dinner. But it could happen in this case. Maybe he just walked by. Some commentators think that he was a plant. So maybe some of these lawyers, Pharisees, knew this man with dropsy and brought him in specifically to see what Jesus would do about it. We have here a mention of lawyers. The lawyers show up here in verse 3, lawyers and Pharisees. And we've talked again about them as well in weeks past. We don't think of them too much like lawyers today, where lawyer is a secular profession in our day and in many cases, even anti-religious. But in Jesus' day, these lawyers were lawyers of the Mosaic Law. They were religious scholars and teachers. And just like today, lawyers back then loved to argue and wrangle over words. But instead of wrangling over the U.S. Constitution and local municipal codes, these lawyers in Jesus' day would dispute the meaning of God's law and the many man-made laws that built on that law. So you don't just have the Old Testament's to be expert in, but all the laws that were on top of that. How do we interpret those? How do we apply those to our lives? And Luke himself uses the term lawyers here. Elsewhere, he uses the term teachers of the law and scribes for the same people. So you hear lawyers, teachers of the law, scribes, all these were the same profession, really. The last time we saw lawyers was back in Luke 11. You might remember this, another meal at the Pharisee's house. And Luke eleven forty five, Jesus has already spoken some woes on Pharisees. Luke eleven forty five, one of the lawyers said to Jesus in reply, after Jesus pronounces these woes on the Pharisees, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. So what does Jesus begin to do? He pronounces woes on the lawyers as well. This guy should have kept his head down. When Jesus is pronouncing woes, you either repent or you keep your mouth shut, because otherwise he's going to... Uh, uh, speak woes upon you as well. And so, verse 53, when Jesus left there after pronouncing these woes at this luncheon, the scribes and Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. So that's the last time we saw lawyers, again, in a hostile environment at a lunch with some Pharisees as well. We also see earlier in Luke, Luke 7.30, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. That's John the Baptist, of course. And we see another lawyer in Luke ten twenty-five. A lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So lawyers show up from time to time in the Gospel of Luke, and elsewhere in the Gospels. Now, you might think, when you see this term in Luke 14, where it talks about the lawyers and Pharisees, that they're separate people. Like bacon and eggs, that kind of thing. They're separate things, but they're not necessarily separate things. Remember, Pharisees were a religious sect, and lawyering, lawyering was an occupation, so it's a job. So you could be a lawyer and a Pharisee, depending on your religious views. Some lawyers could be Pharisees. So they're not again not separate things. There could be some lawyers who were Pharisees, some lawyers who weren't Pharisees. But the lawyer was just their job. Now, one other thing as background. We often see Jesus healing on the Sabbath. We saw earlier the man with the withered hand was on a Sabbath. There was an, We see in Mark and Luke a man who had a demon had a demon cast out in the middle of the synagogue during a Sabbath worship time. Peter's mother-in-law, we mentioned earlier, was at a home but it was on a Sabbath. Luke 13 we saw a few weeks ago there was a woman bent double by the evil spirit and that was on a Sabbath also. And There were other times outside of the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus healed on a Sabbath and, and got in some trouble for it, we mentioned, again, the man of with the withered hand. We saw, and we see in Matthew 12, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Or we saw earlier, we read this just a few minutes ago, Luke 6.11, they themselves, that is the, the Pharisees, were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. So after Jesus healed the man with the with a hand, they wanted to kill him. The Gospel of John, there's at least two instances. Jesus healed the man by the pool at Bethesda in John 5. Verse 16 says, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And then John 9, we looked at just a few weeks ago, the man born blind, the reaction, John 9, 16, Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So some Pharisees say for sure Jesus wasn't from God. Others saying, well, how can he be from God and still heal a man born blind? So a number of times Jesus heals on the Sabbath and there's a a real hostile reaction to it. Back to the Gospel of Luke. There are four times, and we won't look at all these in detail, but four times Jesus has sort of Sabbath controversies. One is about the disciples picking grain on the Sabbath, and three of them are over healing. And I find it interesting when you look at these stories in detail, three times Jesus asks questions with sort of clear, obvious answers. Uh, Like in Luke 6-9, again, the man with the withered hand, Jesus speaks to the crowd. They're watching to see what he's going to do, and he says this, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? You might say, well, it's obviously good to save a life on the Sabbath. Uh, In in Matthew, this parallel to the man with the withered hand says this, Jesus said, what man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? And Jesus answers his own question, how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And in the case of Luke 13, let's look there. Luke 13, this woman who's bent double from an evil spirit. Luke 13, verse 10, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So again, we're in the synagogue, not at a Sabbath meal at somebody's home. There was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, he's sort of the leader of the synagogue here, the one who presides over the, the service, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done, So come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Interesting here that this man doesn't confront Jesus. He tells people, don't come to get healed. I don't know if he is just uh, intimidated by Jesus, but he doesn't talk to Jesus directly. He talks to the people who are coming to get healed. But the Lord answered him and said, verse 15, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? Again, Jesus asks a question when he's doing these healings. Wouldn't you untie your ox or donkey to water him? You don't don't make your animals go thirsty and starve on the Sabbath day. You you serve your animals. This woman is the daughter of Abraham, and she's been bent double for 18 years by an evil spirit. Why not on the Sabbath day? What's, What's the best day of the week to get healed? To be set free from a demon. You think the Sabbath day would be the best day to get healed, not the worst? So Jesus asks these pointed questions with really obvious answers, but the people who who hear him don't often respond properly. He asks the question also in our passage from today, Luke fourteen three. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? You guys are lawyers, you're the experts, you should know is it lawful to heal? But Jesus here is turning the tables on them. These men are there to watch Jesus. They're there to examine Jesus, but Jesus is going to turn his attention on them. He's going to examine them. He's going to question them. You might say, you have a lawyer, and you have someone in the witness stand, and the lawyer questions the witness, right? Well, Jesus turns the tables. Now they're in the witness stand, and Jesus is questioning them. He's questioning the lawyers. On other occasions, as we just saw in Luke 13, people have said outright it's wrong to heal on the Sabbath, or at least in non-life-threatening situations. But in this case, what's their response? It says in uh, verse 4, they kept silence. We also saw that in the Gospel of Mark, Keep going back to this episode of the Man with the Withered Hand, and that's in the synagogue itself. And Mark, it's interesting, Jesus says, is it lawful to do good or do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill but they kept silent. So sometimes they, they speak, sometimes they keep silent. But as we look at these men in Luke 14, you wonder why they kept silent. and Maybe they just wanted Jesus to perform the healing so they would have a reason to accuse him. Or maybe they're sort of figuring it out in their mind. If they say, yes, it's lawful, then they can't complain when Jesus does a healing, right? If they say, "Well, no, it's not lawful," then how do they how do they look to the people who are there, watching this this sick man, saying, "Sorry, buddy, you got to come back later." So they either look uh, like they have no grounds to accuse Jesus, or else they look really uncompassionate to those who are watching. So Jesus puts them on a horns of a dilemma. They can't answer yes or no. It's kind of like later when they ask that Jesus is talking to them and says, "Was." baptism of John from God or not and they say well you we say one uh, then if they say yes he was from God Jesus is going to say why don't you believe him if they say no people will stone them because they think that John's a prophet so they just say I don't know <laughs> they think it's the safest way for them in this case either to say they don't know or just to be quiet, to be silent about it they don't know or they won't say what they think because they, they don't want to be put in that position So, Jesus responds by taking hold of this man and healing him and sent him away. Now, don't go too far. Don't skip past this, but looking at it in more detail. Notice here it says, he took hold of him and healed him. And I find it really amazing and beautiful how often in the Gospels you see Jesus touching people. When Jesus heals lepers, he could heal them with a word, but he heals them with a touch. And so many people who you might say would be... You don't, people. You don't want to touch, whether it's a, a contagious disease or whether because it's a, a really a disfiguring, grotesque kind of abnormality, as we might have here, this man with the dropsy, maybe really physically repulsive. But Jesus touches this man. It not just touches him. He didn't just touch him with the finger, but he takes hold of him. He may even have embraced him, or he, Jesus somehow grabbed hold of him. This man, if he was really swollen, may have been hard to get your arms around. But Jesus wasn't shy about touching and even taking hold of this man. Other people may have tended to keep their distance, but not Jesus. And looking at this healing, I, again, find this interesting, maybe nobody else will. But usually Jesus adds things, like the man with the withered hand, he adds muscle and strength to this, this hand that didn't work. Or somebody who's lame and can't walk, Jesus adds the ability to walk with these non-functioning legs. Or he adds sight to unseeing eyes or loosening mute tongues, but in this case, he's taking something away. This man has excess water, excess fluid in his body, and somehow it just dries up. It just miraculously goes away. So this man shrinks, like the withered hand sort of gets bigger before your eyes, but this man shrinks before your eyes as Jesus heals him of this dropsy, of this edema. And then Jesus, it says here, healed him and sent him away. This man is, doesn't need to be here for the, the epilogue, the, the further uh, examination from these, these Pharisees and lawyers. So Jesus sends him away. He's now healed and can go home and enjoy his life as a healed man. But then Jesus isn't done with these lawyers and Pharisees. He has another question. He's already asked, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now verse 5 he says, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day. Now, remember I read earlier, Luke 13, this is the woman bent double. In, here in Luke 14, he's not so confrontational. In Luke 13, he calls them hypocrites. You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his donkey, his ox his donkey from the stall, and lead him away to water him? So Jesus is more mild here in Luke uh, 14, but he still is pointed in his question. He says, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well? And he, this is a useful technique to draw out a response. He's not just telling them something. He's asking them a question, and that engages a listener. You ask a question like the, the uh, Socratic method. You want to draw people out. You ask a question and expect them to answer. Which one of you would have the center ox fall into a well and not pull them out immediately? He does this also in Luke 11. He says... Uh, Suppose one of you, or literally, which one of you will have a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. You're engaging the listener to imagine them themselves in the situation. Or Luke 11, 11, he says, Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. Literally it says, which one of you, a son, will ask the father for a fish? And then later in Luke 14, verse 28, it says, Which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, Does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. So he's not just saying, consider the cost, he's saying, imagine yourself building a tower. You would want to sit down and you want to calculate the cost. And then Luke 15. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost some of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And in that context, we have tax collectors and sinners coming to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, again, lawyers, began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus asked them a question. You guys are are sort of normal, you think, kind people with regard to sheep. If you had a sheep and you lost one, you had 99 more, wouldn't you go and find that lost sheep? That's what I'm doing. So by, again, asking questions in this way, He's expecting engagement from the listeners. He's expecting an answer. And really, in these cases, the answer is obvious. If your son asks you for a fish, you're going to give him a snake? Of course not. No good father would do that. If you have a friend who comes to you at midnight and wants some food, you might say, grumble, 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 but your friend persists, you would help him out. If you're going to build a tower, you don't just start building. You calculate to see if you can build the thing. So Jesus asks these questions of people that have obvious answers, and he wants to draw them out. Think about this. But, in this case, they could make no reply to this. If the answer is obvious, they would say, of course we would do that. But they don't want to speak because it looks bad for them, doesn't it? It's, the response from Jesus is obvious they would say, of course we would help our son or an ox out of a well on a Sabbath. Jesus would then say, what? Why not help us now with the dropsy? So they just have to be quiet because they know there's no good answer. They've been caught in their hypocrisy, and their lack of love for this man who was suffering in this way from this dropsy, this, this edema, this swelling. It's interesting that many times the Pharisees spoke harshly to Jesus, or spoke harshly about Jesus. In this case, in Luke 14, they're saying a whole lot of nothing. Verse 4, they kept silent. Verse 6, they could make no reply to this. They know that Jesus has spoken in a way that they can't argue with, so they just stay quiet. They know that they would perform this act of mercy, even though Maybe they could wait. You imagine if your son falls into a well on a Sabbath day, you call down there, hey son, you okay? Yeah, yeah, leg's broken, but I think I'll survive. Okay, well we'll see you at sundown. Would a father do that? No. If, if they were maybe in imminent danger of death, you might go get him. No, they're gonna get them no matter what. If they fall in, even if they're not hurt, they're gonna fall and get them. And even if it's not so serious as a child, an ox is even Aside from the mercy of helping a creature that might be suffering, oxen are expensive. They're valuable creatures. And so you want to pull them out. You'd get, uh, getting an ox out would be a difficult thing to get out of a well, but you'd get all your friends to do whatever you could to get this ox out of this well. Well, if you would do that, then certainly you would want to save uh, somebody. You'd want to help somebody who was sick on a Sabbath day. Now Jesus doesn't explain in this case in verse, in Luke 14, but we just read earlier, Luke 13, 16. He says to them, and this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? It's a great day to be saved, to be unbound from Satan. And we don't know how long this man suffered from dropsy, maybe it was 18 years, maybe it wasn't, but in Jesus' mind, this man shouldn't suffer any longer. He suffered enough. If he suffered for an hour, a day, a year, his whole life from dropsy, Jesus should not suffer any longer. And there's no reason in God's law that Jesus should wait at all. He's going to heal him right at that moment. Well, any questions before we wrap up? I know we didn't get very far. but Let's just end with a few lessons. Remember here that says in verse one that the Pharisees were watching him closely. And we could ask ourselves, do we stand up to the test when unbelievers watch us closely? Every time the Pharisees or other hostile people watch Jesus closely, he gets the best of them because he is righteous, he's he's good. He always does says the words of God. How do you stand up when unbelievers watch you closely, whether they're hostile or not? I think naturally of Daniel, when I think of those standing up to examination, Daniel 6, verses 4 and 5. Then the commissioners and satraps, remember they're jealous of Daniel because he's been elevated so high, they began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption, inasmuch as Daniel was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel, unless we fight it against him with regard to the law of his God. There may be some hostile people in your lives, or maybe friendly people in your lives, who are looking at you and they know you're a Christian, and they don't know Christ, and they're looking at you and they're thinking, is this person real? Is their faith real? Are, are there something that I, sh- I want to emulate? Do I want to know the Christ that they claim to know? And if our lives line up with Christ, that's a light to them, isn't it? But if our lives as they examine them closely, don't match what Christ is. If our lives are like the world, if our lives are no different than anybody else, what do these watchers that think about Christ? They think Christ isn't real, or he doesn't really have the power to transform a life, or you're not taking this Jesus seriously, you're not taking his law seriously, you're not taking his lessons seriously, so why should I want to follow your Christ if you're not really following him? So it's a good question for all of us. If unbelievers or believers are to look at our lives closely, what are they going to see? Are they going to see something like they saw in Christ, somebody who loves God, loves his law, and follows his law? Are they going to see somebody who is not walking in God's law? Another question to ask ourselves is, are you willing to do the right thing, even when it will get you in trouble? Jesus himself could have waited a day or a few hours. This is probably you know, noon, one, two in the afternoon, something. He could have waited a few hours. This man who had dropsy, was not going to drop dead right then, probably. He could have lasted a few hours. She just could have said, oh, I don't need the hassle. I just want to have a nice meal for once. Let's just let this slide. Hey, come back. Sundown. I'll take care of you then. This wasn't a life-threatening disease, but this man's welfare and the, more than that, the principle of the matter was more important for Jesus. He wanted to help this man, but he also wanted to show these Pharisees and lawyers that Your man-made laws do not contradict God's laws. I'm not going to let your man-made laws help keep me from helping this man who needs help. You might know James 4.17. This is a a good one to memorize. James 4.17, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. You might even, if if I can possibly enhance this a bit, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it right away, to him is the sin. He's not saying, I'll do it later. If you know the right thing to do, you're not going to do it tomorrow, next month, next year. You need to do it now. That's the obedience God's talking about here. God doesn't say, obey when you want to get around to it. You want to obey now. You must obey now. So we have an opportunity for Jesus here to do good. He wants to do it now. For us, we have the opportunity to do good sometimes we need to do it now, we need to do it when God calls us to do it. And I'll confess that some of the greatest regrets in my life are when I had an opportunity to do good to someone, but I didn't. Whether it was out of fear or indifference, whatever it might be, I had a chance to help somebody and I didn't do it. And I regret that to this day. On the other hand, some of the greatest joys are when, by God's grace, I did the right thing, regardless of whatever opposition I might face. And That's a great blessing to have those opportunities to stand up for God, even if it involves persecution, it might involve loss of a job, even going to jail. For some people in this world, someday, even to us, maybe even losing our lives for Christ's sake, but we want to do the right thing, follow God's law, follow God's commands, because it's the right thing to do, and to do it now, regardless of the circumstances. So Jesus always did the right thing, regardless of circumstances, and ultimately took him to the cross. And it may be the same thing for us. Someday. But we want to do the right thing at the, not just at the right time, the right time is now, right, to do the right thing. One last thing I want to bring up here is I thought about this passage and think about the reaction of these lawyers, these Pharisees, and I, it, it's so grieving to see when Jesus, the, the, the loving, kind, gentle son of God speaks to them and they have an opportunity to hear this man speak. And he asked them simple, obvious questions. The the questions were so obvious, they didn't have an answer, because they they didn't want to condemn themselves by answering them. Jesus rebuked them again and again. He spoke to them, sometimes with woes, with these sort of uh, stronger statements, like like these "Woe, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Sometimes they were more gentle like here in Luke 14. But however Jesus spoke, for the most part, these men did not listen. There was obvious truth, but their heart was so hard, they would not respond to this, this rebuke, this reproof. These people here in Luke 14 must have felt the sting of Jesus' simple questions, and yet, instead of acknowledging that Jesus was right, they kept silent. Or in other cases, they tried to destroy Jesus. There are many Proverbs we could look at, but just listen to a few of them. Proverbs 17, verse 10. A rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. And Proverbs 10, 17. He is on the path of life who heeds instruction, but he who ignores reproof goes astray. And Proverbs 13, 18. Poverty and shame will come to him who neglects discipline, but he who regards reproof will be honored. And then one bonus from Ecclesiastes 7.5. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. These Pharisees and lawyers in Luke 14 were listening to the song of fools, weren't they? They were so caught up in their own man-made law, they were foolish. And when man a man came who spoke the truth, and only the truth, did they hear him? Did they heed him? Did they listen to that rebuke? They, they didn't. They were so foolish. They were so hardened to God's law, to God's purposes, that they rejected the one who spoke the truth. If somebody doesn't listen to me, not really a big deal. right? I'm just a man. But if I'm speaking the truth of God, then they're accountable to that. These men here heard the words of God from the Son of God and they rejected it. I want to ask you, first of all, when you hear rebuke from your parents, from your, your spouse, your friend, what's your reaction to that? My reaction, first of all, is to say, who it is. How dare you? <laughs> How dare you rebuke me? I'm an elder in the church. I'm your father. I'm your husband. How dare you do that to me? But then, hopefully, shortly after that, I think, you know what? They're right. I deserve that. I was in the wrong. I need to accept this rebuke. and I need to learn from that rebuke. And maybe it takes a hundred times for me to actually learn from that rebuke, but I need to heed that rebuke, even if it's not given to me in a gracious way. If somebody ungraciously rebukes me, if they're right, what should I do? Should I throw it back on them and say that no, they didn't do it right? So therefore, I'm I'm in the clear. I don't have to change. No, I, I need to take that rebuke, however it's given to me, and and take it just as these men in in Jesus' time should have heeded that rebuke. I don't want to be a fool like they were, and to hear God's word given to me even through a imperfect messenger, and not respond in a way that will help me grow in Christ. And if there are those here who, who have heard the, the gospel of Christ, who have heard the command of Christ, and you're not listening to Christ, if you're living your life your own way, you're following your own direction, you're following the world, you're disobeying God day after day after day, you're being foolish. You're, you're like somebody who's walking on the edge of a cliff, ready to fall over. And you must repent and follow Christ and listen to him and, and be saved and ask him to help you walk in the right path. And let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this lesson. As I said before, we grieve to see those who can hear the words of Christ from his own mouth and still reject him. We pray there be none here who do such a thing as they hear the words of Christ today in Luke 14. May we all hear the words of Christ and follow him. And if there are places where we're being foolish, help us to step back from that foolishness, to heed wise rebuke and to listen to your word, to walk wisely in this unwise world. Help us to follow Christ more closely as we reflect on what he's taught us today. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.